Today, we're going to experiment a bit and channel our inner radio lab. If this reference means nothing to you, I sincerely encourage you to look their podcast up. Radio Lab is what made me fall in love with radio. So today we're presenting three short stories, all loosely connected to an overarching theme, finding center. What does finding center mean, you may ask? Well, hopefully by the end of the show, you'll have your own conclusions. This is Hiba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Finding Center, short story one. This is a story about finding yourself in the reflection of a horse. Let's begin. I want you to meet Kelly. Hi, I'm Kelly Eide. Is that how you say it? Yeah. I never knew. It's like Heidi, but no H. I always would pronounce it like AIDS, like the holiday. And everybody thinks that then I will be Lebanese. And then I show up and they're like, wait, you're not who we were expecting. (laughs) I'm just me, the little American from Norwegian roots. (laughs) And Kelly is a horse whisperer. Actually, that's not true. Often people will call the clinicians who work in that field horse whisperers, which is such a misnomer because there's no whispering. If you're talking to a horse, it's for you. It's for you. The horse doesn't know what you're saying. Kelly runs a leadership coaching company based in Dubai called True, where she brings people out to the stables and through a series of exercises with horses, she helps you connect to your true self. I take people out into nature and then I partner with horses to help them explore the subjects of leadership, communication, culture building, creativity and innovation. I like to think it's the ultimate cross-cultural experience. (laughs) We think in Dubai that we're all really good at that, but when you work with another species, you take away everything. You take away your gender, your nationality, your religion, your status. All of those things, the horse doesn't meet you that way. The horse meets you in presence. You know when people talk about their professional life and their personal life? When you have an argument in your home in the morning, you don't leave that energy in your house. We have all kinds of masks that we put on, but the horse is the first to go, yeah, that mask isn't working for me. So the horse chooses to interact or not with you based on your presence in that moment. So it takes you down to a real place of authenticity. That is the experience that I offer to people, and a horse is just like a generous thousand pound mirror. (laughs) Every thought pattern, every emotion that you show it, it reflects back to you. It's like you're a translator. Yes. So how do you understand what the horse I mean, what that feedback means in human terms, how does that translate? I had a wonderful experience once with a couple. And the, the couple was with me. And the man was, was working with the horse. And he works with animals. So he had some expectations of himself. And it came to a point where the horse was away from him. And he wanted to invite the horse to come, for, come to him. And so he invited the horse to come. And the horse hesitated a little bit. And then it was almost like he got upset and he sent the horse away again. 
moved it, said, then go away from me. And again, he sort of came to a still point in the, in the interaction, and it was like he was going to invite the horse to come, and he did it again. The horse didn't come on the first ask. Then he sent it away again. So I stopped him and said, so is there anything else in your life that you give one chance to connect with you, and if it doesn't connect with you in the way that you envision, you push it away? And his wife put up her hand and she goes, I can answer that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is a question for him. So she may have an opinion, being in an, in an intimate relationship with him, but this is a question for him. And then he gets to experiment, going, oh, what if I give you a chance or two? What if I don't make it mean that you didn't come to me like that in one second? doesn't mean you're rejecting me. And so by asking those questions, I shine a light of what I'm seeing. I don't know what circumstance that is in his life. His wife seems to. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what circumstance that is in his life. But those are the types of questions that people say, how do you know that? Yeah. I don't know that. I see that. And the reason why I think it's so powerful is because it's immediate. Mm. Virtually everything else that we do to experience these, um, to experience ourselves, our inner world, and things like that are simulations. Either that or it's a horrific experience that we went through in our life, which is not the best way to learn because you're in the panic zone. I like to take people into their stretch zone often they're uncomfortable, and I like to really take them to the edge of their stretch zone, but not into a personal crisis where they're in panic. You learn really well in that space. So the horse will show them the thing which is present in all of their relationships. It's so common for someone to say, that horse is just like my five-year-old, or that horse is like my business nemesis. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, that's incredibly empowering because if the horse is just like your five-year-old, then you're the common denominator in both of those relationships. And I can't change anything about you, but I can change anything I want about me. Mm. Then to go back into my own life and go, I'm going to experiment with this and I'm going to make little tweaks. So the next short story we have for you is about being in the physical center of a hula hoop. But really, it's a story about finally feeling at peace. This is Tiba. Can you say something? Hello. Okay, hi, my name is Tiba Al-Qadari. Um, I'm from Saudi, and I'm, I was born in Baghdad, grew up in Saudi, and Riyadh. Tliba was raised in a traditional family and went the very typically linear path, graduated from Harvard Business School, was working for big corporates like Louis Vuitton, Johnson & Johnson, and then turned hippie, got married at Burning Man, and started a hula hooping movement in Dubai through her company Flowground, where she trains over 200 students in her classes how to hoop. How, how do you happen? And I'm making assumption of how you were raised, but how do you go from Riyadh to Burning Man and now teaching hula hooping? So my my parents are 
um, traditional yet not traditional, which I think is like a syndrome of every Arab, you know Arab child. There are things that are okay and things that are not. Or um, but throughout my childhood, my parents always. Um, especially my mom and her side of the family, a lot of creativity and they were always, you know, the ones with like a million necklaces and like dressed in all this colorful outfits or my grandma would wear like these lavish hats and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So they had more of a very eccentric background compared to, you know, the norm Arab. At the same time, I think for me, um, even, you know, studying abroad was somewhat of a hurdle because my my in our family only guys were allowed to study in the states yeah, yeah. and i you know after my brother went i thought it was very unfair so i really fought my way through it i always tell my dad you kind of created me so when did you start hooping i went to a music and art festival in the states and during my time there i saw my first hula hooper and i was just blown away um, the look of serenity and peace on her face was incredible and i just wanted to be her at that moment <laughs> The poor girl has no idea that she has changed my life. I just like was totally mesmerized by the hoop. So I've only hooped once or twice in my life. And the last time I recall hooping, I, I was so young, I can't even really remember what it's like. So why hooping? It's It specifically helped me, um, you know, reach that state of meditation or flow or being centered is because... Um, with a lot of activities, you're limited to a location. So with yoga, most people do it. I don't know. You would never do yoga in the middle of a party. Maybe you would, but not. <laughs> but I'm the person who loves to dance, loves to engage, loves community, wants to talk with someone while I'm hooping, Skype with you know my boyfriend at the time while I'm hooping. <laughs> so it was just all these things. I'm like super ADD. I didn't. I never tested for it, but like I can't. survive a movie so I would assume that's like uh, I always end up fighting with my husband in the cinema because like I either pass out or like not focus or ask too many questions and I really struggled with meditating and it just didn't work for me and then with hooping I was able to really let go and just be very present and very in my body and be in the moment um and nothing has enabled me to be in that state before. And I thought of two reasons of why it helped me center. One, something that has to do more of the rhythm of the hooping. Hooping is like a push and pull movement because when you hoop, a lot of people think it's a circular movement, but it's actually a front and back movement. The movement of the hoop, a beat in your core and a beat in your back. So you push with your core and pull with your back. So there's a beat going over and over again, which gives you kind of like that transient state. You almost feel it, you almost hear it too, pushing, pulling, expanding, contracting, so you really become in that state. The second thing is the movement of the hoop is a circular movement. And you know how we talk about the circle of life, no beginning, no end, and the whole earth and all the solar plants and everything goes into circles as well. So you're almost becoming within the movement that you know the world is in. Even the Sufi dancers, they choose themselves as a center and, and turn around themselves just so they can find their own center within it. And really, when you turn, even as you, you know, think about yourself, when you turn really fast, you almost can't see anymore in front of you and you're just really in that feeling of whatever you're feeling at that time. 
Um, third has to do with the definition of flow. And for me, flow is like the perfect balance between the physical, mental, and spiritual self when they're very connected and integrated together. And I believe that when you are in flow, you need to really be present and in the moment. You, you can't be thinking when you're in flow. You can't be planning what you're having for dinner or regretting you know, doing something in the past. You really need to be feeling it. And sometimes to reach flow, you need to be doing something in repetition. So now when I pick up a hoop, I almost, like I don't think, like I have the courage to almost forget everything I learned and just believe that I can do. Mm -hmm. And when you are so em empowered and impelled by the now, you almost forget everything else. And that's what, you know, flow gives to you. I feel like there's something deeply satisfying about a repetitive movement, a repetitive physical movement that you don't have to think necessarily about the technique when you get to a certain skill level. And as you said, you feel comfortable and courageous enough to just, your body will go through the motions. And when you're spinning, you don't even really see your surroundings anymore. And, and I feel like in a world where we're so heavily inundated with stimuli and our minds are worrying all the time, I feel like when you engage at least in a physical activity like this, it, it almost it almost compartmentalizes your mind and then it, it kind of liberates you to actually be mentally present. Yeah, because if your physical self, if you're not very aware of your body and not in the moment and even that touch... It brings you into yourself. Yeah, it makes you, oh, I know I'm here. For our third, final, and longest story, we're exploring the balance between your spiritual and worldly lives. We're going into the classroom to tell this, so I want you to meet Professor Gassoum. So my name is Nidal Gassoum. I am from Algeria. Nidal is an astrophysicist teaching at the American University of Sharjah in the UAE. I actually never started with astronomy. I started with science. I started with math and physics, which were... You know, absolutely fascinating to me. And then it became to sort of all fit together. Like I need to understand all of this now from historical perspective, from the philosophy, what does religion say and how, how can it fit with this? And this is where we begin our story. It's at the interplay of religion and astronomy. There are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world and astronomy determines the frequency of much of their religious practices. Maybe one way to characterize it, instead of saying finding center, is maybe finding balance. That you want your spirituality and your worldly life to go together. And not like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be fasting, so that's spiritual activity. But at the same time, I am really in a big situation here because I don't really know if tomorrow I have to get up early or if I'm going to ask for a day off because tomorrow is going to be Eid. Because in Islam, timings of prayer coincide with movements of the sun. Fasting, or the month of Ramadan, and the pilgrimage, or Hajj, with the movements of the moon, when the crescent of the new moon can be seen in the ninth month of the lunar calendar. Meaning timing of religious activities are constantly changing. You see, Islam wanted always people to have some connection with not only God, but with the rest of creation. Between humanity, humans, uh, nature, the cosmos, the environment, and the rest of all creation, and God. So these uh, times of worship, because they are spiritual times, you get up and pray. I mean, but all these religious activities are completely tied to cosmic times, to where is the sun and where is the moon. But here's the thing. 
There's a disagreement between scientists and religious scholars as to how to calculate these timings, what the science can predict, and what the religious scholars permit. The consequences of this are that Muslims have to wait until the evening before for an official announcement of whether Ramadan begins the following morning, i.e. they have a few hours notice of whether they're going to be fasting the next day, or whether, as in many Arab countries, the workday hours are going to be shortened because of fasting, or they're waiting for an announcement of whether they'll have off entirely for the next week for their Eid holiday. It makes planning ahead of time really difficult because you're waiting until the last minute for direction. We get into some some tug of war or some friction because the religious scholars say, oh, th- these are religious issues and these are our prerogatives to decide upon. And you are here only to sort of recommend or make suggestions or advise. Uh, and we say, what do you mean advise? I can't advise you that the sun is rising today at 5 o'clock, 05. It's not an advice. This is an absolute fact. It is for me to say, and once I have said it, sorry, you don't have anything to say on this. You can tell me that your prayer begins when the sun sets, and I can tell you exactly when that will be. Or you can tell me that your prayer begins when the sky becomes completely dark, and then from meteorology, astronomy, I can determine when does the sky become completely dark and determine at what moment Does that happen? And once I tell you, you don't say, oh, thank you for the advice. I will decide whether I'll use this or not. Say, no, excuse me. Whatever is scientific is scientific. Now, this science cannot go to people and say, you know what? You shouldn't pray in the evening, okay? That science cannot do and must not do because that's not its prerogative. But science, whatever it can calculate, whatever it can determine is its own prerogative. So there is some sort of separation of the, of the powers, if you like, but there is a way to put them all together. So the religious scholars will tell us, what times they're talking about, which days, what do you mean by Ramadan starting, under what condition does Ramadan start, with the crescent, can it be seen with naked eyes, with telescopes. You can tell me all these conditions, but once we have done the calculations, then people should abide by them. See, astronomy is very capable nowadays to calculate for you the position of the moon and the position of the sun in the sky from anywhere for years and for centuries ahead. Really? Yes. Oh, yeah, we can do this now for, I can tell you, 200 years from now, when, you know, at what time people should be praying in Zimbabwe. How? Because it's, it's equations. Just solve the equation and put the time, you know, sort of 300 uh, years from now, or, or instead of saying next year, you say, okay, 100 years from now, just put T, you know, replace T in the equation. For us, like, <laughs> what's the big deal? Really, for the scientists, like, it's no big deal, it's just another value for T. Now, the astronomers and religious scholars have come to an agreement on calculating prayer times. There are numerous mobile apps and timetables that can tell you when to pray for years ahead. For the start and end of Ramadan, or the Hajj pilgrimage, however, which requires the sighting of the new crescent on these months, the jury is still out. Both scientists and religious scholars continue to debate how to determine this. I tell people, look, when you want to pray for... Maghrib, for example, or Asr, or Dhuhr, or any time. Do you go and wait until the sun is up and... No, you say, oh, I know uh, prayer time will be at 12.15. So, okay, 12.15, I have to get ready and go to the mosque. You don't wait. Why? Because you know that the science has become so accurate that you don't even need the confirmation. You don't go and check. It should, be, it should become the same if I tell you, look, Ramadan is going to be on... June 13 or whatever it is, then you say, okay, Ramadan is going to be on June 13. I'm going to plan my whole Outlook calendar on uh, on this. 
so that I know that on June 13, I'll be fasting. And so I don't get an appointment at 6 p.m. And, you know, you organize yourself. So why is there a discrepancy? There is a discrepancy because the religious scholars are still adamant that we need to follow the hadith, which says... Hadith is a recorded saying of the Prophet. Call it instructions or guidelines. Which says, fast when you see the crescent. And so they say, oh, we have to wait and see it. I say... But if I'm telling you ahead of time when you will be able to see it, then it shouldn't be a problem. And they will tell you, well, we don't have a hadith that explicitly tells us you do not pray until you see the sun reach this place. It just says the prayer times are the following. But it doesn't say you have to wait until you see the sun actually go below the horizon. So because there is no you know, sort of literal injunction, people say, oh, but the hadith doesn't tell me I have to wait and look for the sun. But for the crescent, I have a hadith that tells me, you have to wait until you see the crescent. Yeah, but that was because 1400 years ago, there was no other way. What did you expect the prophet to tell them? Oh, wait until the astronomers give you their results of their computer simulations. So he had to say, wait until you see the crescent, because that was the easiest and the only way of determining the start of the month. But once we have moved on and we have a lot more science, I say, if you bring the prophet today and I show him all my calculations, Do you think he said, yeah, yeah, that's really nice, but let's wait until we see the crescent? He's not going to say that. We know for certain from his life that he always promoted, you know, sort of reasonable, more understanding, whatever is easiest on the people. In Saudi Arabia, and sometimes even here, when it's raining, they combine Maghrib and Isha, for example. Really? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is very common. Why? Why? Because there are some hadiths that give permission. That if it is really raining, then it is hard for people to go to the mosque at night and it's raining and, you know, it's all muddy outside, etc. So people, for example, would go to the Prophet. I mean, I'm not an expert on the Hadith. I don't remember all the Hadiths, but I can imagine that people would have gone to the Prophet and say, Prophet, I mean, it's very hard for us to keep going to the mosque and do this. And, And as I said earlier, the Prophet was really the easiest guy. He was like, oh, okay, no problem. Okay, if there's an easy solution for you, yeah, why don't you? No problem. You don't have to come back. Okay, you can pray, you know, both of them at the same time. Oh, and tomorrow you're on travel and you can't fast. No problem. You don't have to fast when you're on travel. You can make it up later. It was always, you know, sort of trying to make it easy and find solutions for people. There are some call them explicit instructions for certain cases. And then there are the modern cases not accounted for in historical texts. What makes this entire debate tricky is the confrontation between literalist interpretation of holy scriptures and modernity. The back and forth between the religious scholars and science is not unique to Islam. The same is true in nearly every religion and philosophy. How do you reconcile following of traditions, which by definition means they're grounded in historical context, with stepping into modernity? Modern science, modern discoveries, modern developments. For this particular debate about the sighting of the new crescent to determine the start of Ramadan or Hajj, we find that each school of thought and country has come to their own and different conclusions, further complicating this matter. The differences are the following. Do you accept, do you require the sighting of the crescent to be local or do you accept uh, uh, other regions first? Number two, in modern times, for the last now 50 years or so, that people have been aware that, oh, there's something called a telescope. So, hey, religious scholars, is this okay? If I see the crescent with a telescope and I say, hey, I'm seeing it, is that okay? Thirdly, if you're going to accept observations from other lands, 
how far away do you do you accept? Uh, there are now some religious uh, schools that accept the crescent if it is seen even in Latin America. Yeah, it's perfectly fine with us. Okay, it can be seen over there. Yeah, okay, good. Tomorrow we fast. Uh, and some others say, no, you can't do that. You have to only accept regions that are that share the night with us. Oh, and of course, there are some countries now, this is, these are not religious schools. It's mostly sort of authorities, let's call them, uh, that accept to go by the calendar, the calculated calendar. So, for example, Turkey now goes with has been going with calculations for like really? 20 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah, long time. They, they don't wait for anybody to see the crescent or not see the crescent. They have their calendar finished. Okay, we follow. Uh, and it used to be that there were some other countries like Tunisia. Now, after the revolution, Tunisia has gone back to adopting the, the, uh, the crescent observation. That's super interesting. Yeah. Uh, Libya used to have its own criterion under Gaddafi and now has gone back to sort of the traditional way. All these re revolutions have sort of, okay, we need to go back to the tradition. And this becomes... this. Actually, your method, I, I argue with the, with the religious scholars, I say your method is the method that gives trouble to people mm -hmm. because it creates differences and disagreements and arguments and people going, yes, they saw it, no, we don't see it, but Saudi Arabia is not, the, but in our country they announced and then it becomes, you know, big, a big fuss. And so there's a, there's a matter of stress. There's a matter of, you know, lack of planning and disagreements. Oh, the other mosques, they have decided to do this, but our mosque, and then it's like, oh, we can't talk to them because they have different... And so that lack of balance between the uh, temporal affairs and the religious, spiritual affairs, for me, is, is really something significant to address. And this, this balance, I think, is, is, is fundamental. I don't think people can be happy just... Oh, I'm having, I'm living my spiritual life perfectly fine. Oh, I don't care if they haven't decided what we're going to be to, doing to do tomorrow. I don't see that as a as a as a as a proper way of of going about your religious affairs. But people sort of are good at sort of shutting down, you know, one one part of the brain or another. Um, but but I, I I don't I don't see that as a as an acceptable solution. So it's again it's that you know finding a center or, or balancing things around the center. And har having harmony, I always insist on, I like this word, harmony, you know, harmony in one's life. And so now all we're doing, we, the Muslim astronomers, is trying to sort of balance it again, to reconcile this with this, try to find what is the optimal solution that still preserves the culture, but at the same time, they fit. They have to fit. If they don't fit, then we haven't solved the problem. This concludes this episode of Kerning Cultures, with special thanks to Kelly Eide, Liba Khuderi, and Nidal Gassoum. If you'd like to connect with any of the guests you heard from on today's show, we're doing an Ask Me Anything with the guests on our website at kerningcultures.com. Just look for this episode page. This style of an episode was a complete experiment for us, so do let us know what you think by leaving a comment. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>